you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. I think we can get started. Yes. Yay! Okay, here we go, jumping into some Irish lore. So today I'm going to botch all the Irish pronunciation of these names, except for the main character. I do know her name and how it's pronounced. But the story we're going to be talking about today is the death of Macairtach Macairca, I think is the old Irish pronunciation. There is a modern Irish pronunciation. I did try and figure out what the old Irish was. I am not fantastic at old Irish since I do Old English, Old Irish is insane. Modern Irish is crazy, but Old Irish is just way worse. (laughs) So that being said, I apologize for my horrendous Irish pronunciation. Kyle, if you're listening, I apologize because that is your area of expertise and I'm going to butcher this entire segment. So here we go. The death of Makertach Makerka who I will generally refer to as the king since he was a high king of Ireland. Since I do Old English and Latin and not Old Irish. I'm using an English translation of this text, not, I didn't personally translate this from the Old Irish myself, but it's particularly interesting about this text. There's a more modern English translations, or rather, I say more modern, I mean like the 19th, 20th century translations of this text have a little, there's some debate over them, which one of my professors has commented on, I'll get into that later, because it actually, it does make a difference in how the end of the story goes. So that will be very interesting to get into a little bit later. But sort of the overarching idea of the story is that it is an older legend, but was sort of set in stone. The the story was set down in stone and established by the 10th century. And then it was copied through in the 12th century And some people say that even in the 14th century, it's talking about contemporary events. The scribes are talking about contemporary events. They're changing the story to to make it fit the current political issues of the time. There could be a little bit of revisionist history in here. And again, it's interesting into like how things are translated and what's copied down and the end of the story. So jumping right in with that being said, the story begins in Ireland. I think when the when the kings are still around the hill of Tara, things haven't really switched to Dublin yet. Uh, but the king goes out to hunt with all of his men, and he's sort of left alone at this mound at the burg. And while he's sitting up on this mound, which I think could be a fairy mound. I was going to ask. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fairy mound, but there's a lot of, um, like the Hill of Tara, for instance, could be considered a mound. It's basically a sacred space. We'll go We'll go with that. So whether it's a fairy mound or a sacred space or burial mound, I don't think it's a burial mound, but he's, on, he's sitting on this mound. He's sitting on this hill looking over the sunset. Like all sacred spaces, it's a great seat. Yes, always. You know, you need to have a good sitting space, sacred space sacred seat space etc so yes he's sitting there doing his kingly thing having his dinner whatever some wine 
as you do, this maiden appears to him, like just appears sitting next to him on the mound. And according to the tale, she's alone. She's fair haired, bright skinned. She's wearing a green mantle and he instantly falls in love with her, obviously. I guess that's not the worst kind of apparition you could find on a mound. If you're going to have a weird vision, it might as well be of a pretty lady. So anyway, she appears to him and calls on him saying that she is the darling love of Makertek Makerka the king. And he asks her how, like, how do you recognize me? How do you know who I am? Crazy lady who just appeared out of nowhere. Wait, so she shows up. And he immediately falls in love at first sight because fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And the first thing she says is, I am your darling love. Yes. That's unsettling. It's very unsettling. And as far as like fairy tales go, this isn't, I mean, if you go back into the grim fairy tales, like they're grim for a reason and they're not all that great and they don't have very happy endings. And this follows that tradition. So... (laughs) That being said, Irish fairy tales are slightly morbid. Just to be clear, you do know that the reason they're called Grimm is because that's the name of the people who compiled them, not because it's just a coincidence. I know. I know. That's the joke. I'm just terrible with humor. No, they are are Grimm for, for many reasons, including names, but also because they're just not, they don't have happy endings. I do like them, though. They're fantastic stories. So, she says, I am the darling love of the King of Erin, the King of Ireland, and I'm seeking him, and that's why I'm here. Like, oh, lucky you. You're the king, and you happen to sit down on this on this mound. And so, he says, how do you know me, O oh damsel? And that is literally, the, that's the translation that I have. It says, O oh damsel. I don't know what the old Irish says, but it's pretty dramatic. In, it sounds in the, like the setup for some like fairy espionage right <laughs> like go, go worm your way into the royal household you are on the right track you are and we can get into this later but her appearance could be especially to the king could be that of the irish sovereignty goddess and so that is one interpretation of who this could be did you say sovereignty goddess yes I hope you're going to explain that. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about it at the end because there's a lot to jump into. But anyway, so she, appear, she appears to the king and he's like, how do you know me? How, how, like, how is this going on? I'm in love with you. And she says, I know you. You're the king. And he says, this is fantastic. I will grant you control over me for your love. This is very sudden. Yes, very sudden. And she's like, yes, this is exactly what I want. I want control over the kingdom. But there's three conditions. And three will be a reoccurring number here. I'm sorry. So she's putting conditions on being given a kingdom. Like, yes, I will take over. But also, yes, you have to. Okay. See, Irish goddesses have a lot of power and a lot of agency. And that's one of the reasons I really enjoy Irish stories, Irish sagas, is the women are quite strong in these stories. Even if they're not portrayed in the best light, they do have a lot more agency than perhaps poor Tib from last week. Yeah. <laughs> so 
there are three things that she requires. The first one is that his wife, his lawfully wedded wife, the king has already married, the wife must never be in her sight. Wow. So that's number one. Number two is that the clerics must never go into any house that she is in. So you have to get rid of the church. I was going to ask, is this cleric like religion or like clerical work? Nope, this is this is religion. So you got to get rid of, of the church. So they can be in their church, but they can't be in the royal house. And number three is that the king must never utter her name. Did she introduce herself? Not yet. All right. And so if you know anything about the Fae, you know that you never give your name to the Fae because they will have control over you. So this is sort of a weird inverse of that. So the king agrees, but asks what her name is so that he knows not to say it, which seems reasonable enough. I guess, like if her name is Kitty or something. Right. So he's like, okay, I'll banish my wife and my kids. I'll banish the clerics and I won't say your name. Did she ask for him to banish the kids or does he just figure in for a penny, in for a pound? In for a penny, in for a pound, I guess. What he ends up doing is like shoving them all out of the house. He's like, go stay at the go stay at the lake lodge, you know, over there. I've got my mistress in here. I, I kind of get her first two conditions. She's like, all right, if we're going to be together, you got to get rid of the other woman. Uh-huh. Who happens to be your wife. Uh-huh. Sketchy, but I see where you're coming from. Also, I don't want priests bugging me. And yeah. priests can be annoying, so... They can be annoying. I'm kind of on board. I think he's maybe jumping into this a little quickly. Yeah, you know, it's it's a lot for, you know, a first date. <laughs> so <laughs> when they're doing this, it's very interesting in the text because they're doing it, they state it outright as prose, and then they reiterate it all in poetic verse, which is something that you'll find in the Toyn for instance, there's a lot of strange, there's, I think there's two, two different kinds of poetic verse in, in that one, the Cattle Raid of Cooley. And in this one, there's only one, but they're reiterating it. And for the Irish, poetry is very, very sacred. Even, even to this day, they love poetry. I mean, Ireland has a huge history of fantastic poets from like Seamus Heaney to uh, Yeats. So, I mean, you've got amazing poetry all the way, all the way back, even to the legends and stories of, you know, 10th century Ireland and previous. So they're going through this in poetic verse and that sort of makes it even more sacred in terms of the format of the story. So they're not just saying it, they're sort of making it an oath, they're making it a proclamation. So he asks what her name is. And so in this little poetic verse, she she calls herself Sigh, sow, storm, rough wind, winter night, cry, groan, wail, and in the Irish... Hold on. Uh-huh. Is her name... And these are other translations or other names she has. These are other names that she has. Like, it's all one big thing. Yeah. So th- this is not the translator going in and saying, like, here's alternatives of the word. No. She's listing all of these things as her name. So can he not say any of them? She does not elaborate past this. And that is why I love this story. Is because you know he's going to get into massive trouble with this now. Probably, like, yes. Okay, well, here's this long list of words that I can't say now. Or does it only count if he says them all together in that order? You'll see. Let's just go with that. So, and my, my professor, to this day, 
will not say her name. He refers to her as Gail. Okay. Because he will not say her name. Maybe we should bleep it out. I know. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, But it's spelled like sin. But the Irish pronunciation is... So, uh, together they go back to his hall and Mkhertach ousts his wife and children out of the house and they go and they flee to the Bishop of Ireland and they're like, what is going on? My husband just kicked me out of the house. He brings back this other tart, you know, in a green mantle. What's going on? And the Bishop happens to be with the rival clan of Nile. Okay. So the Bishop straight out curses the king and his fortress and blesses the rival clan. I didn't know bishops could curse people. Again, this is why I love Irish stories, is because the church is just as willing to curse your man as bless him. It's like, yep, we're cursing you. And again, he's doing this in verse, which is really, really interesting. He says, there's a curse upon the hill. There's a curse upon the fortress. Uh, he curses Dishonor the corn. Cow. The yeah, just all of it. Just all of it's gone. And then he blesses the rival clan. He's like, y'all are going to be kings. Y'all are going to rule Ireland. And that's very interesting because it follows the lineages of the kingships of Ireland. So again, if you're looking at it from a 12th or 14th century perspective, it's like, oh, you can easily go back through and sort out the lines of, you know, which king needs to be in which position. So did they go back in and write, write that blessing? Or is this part of the original story? I don't know, but I would bet money on the fact that they cursed the king. The bishop at least curses the king. I don't know about the blessing. It makes sense, but I would bet my bottom dollar on the fact that the bishop curses Merkertach. Because this goes back into the, well, it's an Irish tradition. It's a Norse tradition of Geish. Are you familiar with Geish? I mean, oh, yeah. a... you have to be, because we talked about it with uh, Hughes. I was going to say also it's a spell in D&D. Also that! It's one of my favorite spells. <laughs> you know, I love a good Geish, you know? So for those unfamiliar with the less D&D version of a geish. A geish in general is a proclamation or a statement or a curse sort of intending your will onto somebody else. So it's it's basically saying you're going to have bad luck, bad things will come to you, and if someone puts a geish on you, it's going to happen. It's like, oh, well, you know, now I've got bad luck and I get to deal with that however it comes. So that's what the priest is doing here. That's what the bishop is doing, which is very, very interesting because it's a pagan, well, I say pagan, what the lines are about paganism are fuzzy at best, Mm -hmm. but it's at least an Irish tradition. This is not really a Christian tradition that the bishop is using whatsoever. Yeah, no, I definitely haven't heard geish come up in any church I've ever been to. No, definitely not. So it's not outright stated that this is a geish, but it is outright stated that it's a curse. So I don't know what the old Irish word is, but it is a very explicit curse done in poetic fashion. So no bones about it, your man's cursed. So (laughs) that said, the bishop curses the king and the fortress and blesses the rival clan. So while all of this is going on, the king asks whether she believes in God. And she replies that she does, but she can still do great magics, which I think is very interesting and I'm not sure what to make of it. And I would love your take on that either now or at the end. 
My first thought is that that implies that there's some kind of tradition that to join the church, you have to give up access to like old pagan magics. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the case because I think the theme of this entire story is this tension between old patterns of Irish living and more modern, well, I say modern, but the more modern contemporary issues of the church in Ireland at the time. And again, we'll jump into this later. But anyway, so she says, yeah, she can do great magics. And the king's like, okay, show us these magics, beautiful woman. And she creates two battalions just out of the earth and sends them to slaughter each other. And immediately after that, she conjures up this magical feast and this magical food. You know, it's like, you know, dinner and a show, you get both. So... (laughs) The magical food is actually a reoccurring theme in Irish legend, and it can be used for good or ill in some of the stories. So hopefully we'll touch on that later with a couple of the other um, tales that I can find. But in this case, it's not necessarily a good thing for the king, because every time the king eats her food and drinks the wine, all of his strength is gone. It's depleted. It's like, that's it. Forget it. So, so she's no. drugging him. She's drugging him, basically. It's like, here's a big feast. Also, go to sleep. Let me take care of it. Whatever. And this happens twice more throughout the story. They're repeating this pattern over and over again. And so again, you have this idea of threes. So this happens three times. So she makes a battalion with goat's heads and ones with blue skin. And the king goes out and slaughters them all. Why? (laughs) I don't know. Your man is just, you know, he's in a rage. He sees these battalions and, you know, he's just got to go. He's got to go fight them, I guess. I don't know. Is it just him or does he have like other people with him? No, this is just him. The text is explicit about that. It is just him. And so there's the goat's heads and the blue skin battalions. And then the other instance is a bunch of fighters with no heads. Interesting. Yeah. So it's another battalion with no heads. And again, the king goes out and just slaughters them. So he goes out into this battle rage and then he eats the food. Because, you know, you're hungry after a workout like that. Yeah. You know, days of killing people. You got to restore those calories. So he eats the food that she offers because that's her role as, you know, headmistress of the house at this point and then he ends up like collapsing passing out on the ground so this is some serious like battle rage drink your fill pass out and presumably she's making all the decisions while he's busy with this exactly and the clerics aren't there so she gets free reign to do what she wants now what's interesting is as this pattern is repeating itself over and over and over one day someone in the household goes and grabs one of the clerics and brings the cleric to the king and what the cleric sees is the king in a massive rage chopping at stones stods and stalks with his sword that is interesting what is a stod well, there's stones, stalks, and sods. So, like, I'm assuming, like, a giant chunk of hillside. All right. Like, peat or something. So, the cleric shows up and sees your man with a sword hacking at trees, basically. And he's like, what, what in the Lord's name, or not, I guess, since he's a cleric, are you doing? And the king is like, hold up, hold up. Don't you see all these people? And the cleric is like, um, no, my goodly lord. 
I do not. Cross yourself, buddy. You're in bad territory. So the king crosses himself, and after crossing himself, he realizes he's not actually attacking people, but, you know, trees and rocks and earth. Wow, okay, okay. So he immediately repents and partakes of the Eucharist. I mean, does he need to repent? It seems like he's just having fun. (laughs) Well, he's... You know, to be fair, he hasn't killed all the people he's thought he's killed. Yeah, I was going to say, that's less to repent for. You're not killing anyone. Yes, but he's realizing that there's some, like, spooky magics going on here. I mean, they were blue. They didn't have heads. (laughs) We knew they were spooky (laughs) magics. You know, ancient Ireland. You never know what's out in the woods. So, he repents, he crosses himself, he takes the Eucharist. And... He spends overnight in the church and he's like, what, what is going on? What's wrong with me? And he's sort of sorting himself out as a goodly lord, as a, as a good king should do. And when he finally goes home, is waiting for him and asks him what he was up to. So, you know, you could just see her like standing in the doorway like, mm-hmm, 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 exactly. So he explains to her that he was searching out for enemies but found only puffballs and that is one of my favorite quotes from this entire thing he's like oh i've only i found only puffballs and he explains that the clerics intervened and sheen goes on this long tangent again in poetics not all of it's in poem but this bit is about never to trust the clerics and never to repent okay the first part i get sometimes priests are sketchy Never (laughs) repent sounds like a weird thing to say to someone. Yeah. So, never believe the clerics, for they chant nothing save unreason. Follow not their unmelodious verses, for they do not reverence righteousness. If thou desirest life without treachery, better am I as a friend here. Let not repentance come to thee. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he's thrown back into her thrall, and he's like, I'll always be with you. I love you. You're not evil. It's wonderful. I'm never going to trust the clerics again. Uh, so, <laughs> that's his conclusion after all of this. You know, it's like, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. Take me back. Yeah, all right, all right. You know, so she does, and she's not done with all of this. So she's been building up to something. She mixes a massive pot of wine for the king and his men, and the text makes explicit mention of the fact that it's the seventh day of her magic, and it's also the eve of Wednesday after Halloween. Or, I can never say it right, it's the the pagan word for it. Salim? Yes. I was about to ask if the eve of Wednesday wasn't just Tuesday, but now I see where you're going. Yes. So it's Halloween night and she's made this giant cauldron of wine, which she is poisoning or bewitching or doing whatever sort of spooky thing that she's doing. And so she hosts this big to-do for all the troops and the king, and everyone's had the wine, and a massive wind comes down upon the house from the hills. And the king comments on it. Ah, this is the sigh of a winter night. Okay. Wait. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, winter night is one of her names, isn't it? So is sigh. Ah. Yeah. So he's just done it. 
bad idea. And she immediately gets upset and she proclaims, Tis I, the rough wind, the winter night, sighing, groans, and storm, these are my names. And next thing you know, she sends a massive snowstorm from the northwest. Okay. Which Ireland does not get snow. Does it not? Like every once in a blue moon, you'll get some. Or you'll, you might see it on the mountaintops, but it like it does not snow. You don't get a snowstorm. She sends this massive snowstorm, which does not happen. So this is like a giant anomaly for Ireland. And the king, like, you'd think at this point he would have figured this out. You know, she's said that she has magics. She's made battalions. She's caused this giant snowstorm. You would think he's figured it out. But he hasn't, because he reproaches the storm and calls it an evil night. Wait, that's another thing, isn't it? That's another one of her things. Mm-hmm. And so the wine hits, finally, with whatever draught that she's put into it, and everybody passes out. And the text is very interesting here, because it describes the host so that, quote, no one had the strength of a woman in childbed, which could either be very strong or very weak, depending on how you interpret a woman in childbed. I guess that a woman in childbed wouldn't be great at doing things other than giving birth. Right. So if they're but, not trying to do that, then that's a problem. And but you know, giving like, birth is kind of, I, I hear it's quite rough. Yeah. So I figure it's like a woman right after she's given birth is like totally exhausted. That's fair. So that's how I'm interpreting it. But it could be, you know, like no one had the strength that they're used to as, you know, a bunch of warriors. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the king passes out in bed with and has night terrors so bad that he wakes up screaming of witches and demons. And he goes to the clerics and says, you know, the storm is a really bad one. And I don't know what's going on. And this is really weird. And all the clerics at this point are like, oh, my gosh, you are thick you are dumb. What is going on? Like, why have you not figured this out yet? And meanwhile, so that, that's, you know, on one side of his shoulder. And on the other side of the, his shoulder is like, why do you keep saying my name? You keep saying my name. Do you want to die? You're going to die. This is going to end in your death. But apparently, you know, Akersach is just a giant idiot. Yeah, you know, you'd think he'd just make a quick list and like, okay, these are the words I have to stay away from. Like, just don't say these things. But he's done it like three times again in one night. So, that being said, again, you have the threes. So, he says that she's right because it was foretold to him that he would die like his grandfather, burnt alive. Okay, that's a weird reaction. You're right. I have heard that I'm going to die horribly. Good yeah. call. You know, it's like, yeah, it's going to end in your death. And she, and you know, he's like, yeah, I guess so. I'm gonna burn alive. Eh, guess it won't be in a snowstorm. You know, something like that. I guess that helps that he doesn't have to be too worried about the snow. <laughs> so, tells him, leave it to me to safeguard you. Go to bed, babe. Let me take care of it. You go to bed. There's nothing there. Don't worry about it. And he, meanwhile, is all worried about the rival clan and this and that and everything going on, you know, kingly politics stuff. Right. But he, you know, he goes to bed after more of the wine. So he has another vision and asks for it to be interpreted. So his vision here 
is he goes to sea in a ship which founders and a griffin comes to him and carries him into her nest and then he in the nest were burnt and the griffin also dies in the fire all right that doesn't make a lot of sense to me but since this is a story i assume the first person he tells this to will have an interpretation ready yes it's the clerics oh no it's not it's the druids oh better so yeah you know we've got we got the druids coming in so we've got you know we've got the clerics we've got the druids now and his name is dubdarin which sounds like a fantastic rapper name just saying I would want to be called Dubdarin. That seems like a really cool name if you're going to drop an album. Got a anyway. certain rhythm to it. Yeah. So the druid Dubdarin goes to him and says, Okay, the ship is your kingdom on the sea of life, and you are steering it. The ship founders, which means you're going to die. The taloned griffin is the woman that you're sleeping with. So his kingdom is foundering. The woman grabs him from the ship and takes him to her nest i suppose i guess that's an improvement though so that's positive right but it says you are in the nest and therefore more intoxicated by her and she is bringing thee with her to bed to detain thee in the house of Kletik so that it will burn over thee. So again, we have this idea of burning alive, but the griffin, remember, also dies. Oh, hey, yeah. So they're both going to die as a result. I kind of assumed she was immortal. So did I, especially because she just appears to him. Yeah. Right? Which is interesting. And so we'll get get back into that. But meanwhile, because there's always a meanwhile... is going around the house making stakes like pieces of wood that are now sticks yes (laughs) not like she's just you know it's the middle of the night she's making like a really great prime rib (laughs) i I was especially confused because you were doing this like carving motion i'm like just cutting them off the cow sharpening the knives no Uh, so as as wonderful as like a filet mignon in the middle of a night like a winter's night as, as great as that would be, that is not what she's doing because she has not been the best second wife to the king. No, she's making like vampire killing stakes and she is setting them up outside the house entrances. In case of vampires? <laughs> They're pointing towards the house. Wait, so she's just booby trapping the exits? Yes. Why? Well, let's get into why. So she's setting all of this up and places magic about the house. And so she sticks the stakes and the javelins in the ground. And so when the king wakes up again from another nightmare, she's shaking him and she's like, the rival clan is here. Oh no. And of course he sees his enemies pouring in the house. Right, right. Because she's done this before. We know she can do this. So he immediately gets up grabs his his arms and his swords and goes rushing out the door. Into the stakes. Yeah, and so he immediately impales himself. And so he's over here impaling himself on these stakes, cutting through them with his knife. And next thing you know, the house catches fire. How and why? The story doesn't say, I think it's fault. I think that she set the fire. I don't understand her motivations here. We'll get to those, too. So, your man has been stabbed. The house is on fire, and he, not wanting to burn, because he knows what his death is going to be, and he's terrified of it, he jumps into a giant cask of wine. Okay, good call. You know, not too bad. But here's the thing. 
And the text is explicit about this, and it's explicit because this is part of the threefold death. So you know when a house burns, everything kind of sort of like rots away, especially if it's a wooden house and timbers start to fall? Yeah, sure. A timber falls on top of the cask of wine. Oh, so he's trapped. He's trapped. So that means that he is stabbed, he is burnt, and he is drowned all at once. I see. Okay. That is a threefold death that occurs to, if I recall correctly, it's traitors in cases of treason or in the name of a false king. Okay. So the story has established him as a false king at this point. By what metric? By the metric of the threefold death. All right. You know? So because this has happened to him, we have to assume that in some way he's a false king. Because otherwise it wouldn't have happened to him. That's what the story is arguing. Which is interesting. And it can be interpreted in different ways. But anyway, so all of this is going down. He dies by the threefold death. When his wife gets back to the house and finds his body. So the cleric, you know, there's a big hubbub. There's a big to do. The clerics show up. His wife shows up. She is so upset that her heart literally bursts. And the text talks about her chest opening and the gore flying out. Like, that is how upset she is over her cheating husband's death. Seems like an overreaction. I would say so. But anyway, she is perpetually the good wife and so dies for her king, as one might expect in a story such as this. And next thing you know, the clerics find... And suddenly she looks really upset and sad and like she's a human and not some ethereal, elven, otherworldly princess lady. Like, she's just a girl. And she also immediately repents and describes her heritage, saying she only did this because her father was killed at the hands of the king and that she wanted revenge. Okay, that explains some things, but it does not explain most things. No, it doesn't. And so there's a lot of conflict in current scholarship, as far as I know, as to what the clerics who were copying the story down were doing, like whether they added this back in or like they were trying to humanize her. Like, what were they doing here? Were they taking this otherworldly thing and trying to justify it? What was going on here? Because the story has such a lengthy history, it wouldn't make sense for her to be humanized until later editions of the story. But it does 100% sound like some sort of clerical censorship. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because up so, until now, she was definitely not human. No, she definitely wasn't. And so I, that's what I think is going on here. But she also dies of grief because she's repenting and she's like, oh no, alas, this was evil. Which I think is the clerics being like, eh, we'll sweep this under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. And at the very, very end of the story, the head bishop who cursed the king in the first place prays on behalf of the king to get him out of hell. Why? Because he's a he's loyal to his previous king, I suppose. But so the rival clan has taken over. They're now kings of Ireland. But the bishop does this, and some stories say that he does not succeed, and some stories say that he does succeed. My professor is convinced that he has to succeed because the clerics wouldn't copy down a story in which the bishop wouldn't succeed at getting someone out of hell. It would it would undermine the authority of the church, especially at the time. But I'm curious as to what other versions of the tale or older versions of the tale might say. Is this the thing that you said uh, changes a lot in 
translations? Yes, this, this is part of it. So some of the translate, some of the stories say like, oh yeah, it did work, and he did get the king out of hell. And in other versions of the story, he doesn't get the king out of hell. But this angel comes down and gives a speech either way, and that's basically the story. It's got this weird ending where you're not quite sure whether the king has been saved or not. That is weird. Yeah, and so. I did a little project on this where, because I, I was very interested in, in particularly how the clerics and how interact with the king. And so sort of overall, for more background to the story, there's a lot of traditions of Irish sovereignty goddesses. And like there's, there's one fantastic story where three brothers find this old woman at the well and they pull up some water for her because they're thirsty and she's like oh would you give me a kiss and two of them are like no you're an ugly old lady you've got sores the other one says yes and he does and when he pulls away from the kiss she's this beautiful young maiden and it's like because you have because you have done this when i am old and ugly i am now young and beautiful and you are fit to be the king that sounds a lot like sir gowan and dame ragnell yes yeah, very similar. And so it's this Irish sovereignty idea of basically the Irish land or the Irish kingship being this woman or embodied in a woman, personified in a woman who is sort of fickle, but who, who might not look beautiful and contains hardship. But if you like, if you are worthy of her, she will be beautiful and, and so on and so forth. So that's sort of this idea of the Irish sovereignty goddess. And then you have some ideas of the Morrigan, who's sort of the land goddess, goddess of death, things things like that, that sort of tie into it. And then you have these older ideas about more pagan traditions, pre-Christian traditions of kingship, things like that. And it's like you said, like, do can you give this up if you're going with the church? So the main issue that I see in this story is who controls the kingship? Is it the clerics or is it the older pre-Christian ways that are embodied in, in sh- Because both of them have this sort of divine presence because you've got, you know, the Christian God on one side and you have who just appears, but both are humanized in the end, either through the clerics or through being this like human girl who wants revenge. And both of them, and I think this is particularly interesting, both of them have quote unquote magic food. Because on one hand, you've got and her magic food that makes you weak and it's, you know, intoxicating. And on the other hand, you've got the Eucharist, which I don't think you can discount as sort of taking a magical presence. No, that's definitely in this magic story, food. Right? And so you've got you've got these two and so the the way that I take this story in particular is who gets to have control over the king. Like the king doesn't have a lot of power in this story. No, he is fighting rocks. Exactly. He's you know, he's hacking away at rocks and he's like, What am I doing with my life? I don't know. But the main conflict is between the clerics and and notice both of them also curse him to death. So whose curse took effect or is it both? And what does that tell us about Irish society at the time? Those, I suppose, are my major discussion questions for this story. And I, I want to hear your, your takes on this because it's, it's a weird story on its face. But when you start getting down into it, there's a lot of political, you know, and cultural conflict that I think is really, really interesting. Okay, question. 
Who said the king was going to burn to death? The version that I have says, It was foretold that my death and the death of Lorne, my grandsire, would be alike, for he did not fall in battle, but was burnt alive. And that's all it says. But I would say that it was probably the druids. In that case, you could argue that there are three separate curses taking effect for the threefold death. That's true! Oh my gosh! It's a... Oh, man! It's even more of a threefold death. There's so many threes in this story. Maybe that's even why. The druid says he was going to burn, set up this staking, stabbing uh-huh. thing, and uh-huh. bewitched him into it. I guess the third one's the wine. The drowning. Yeah, which... You could associate with the church because, again, Eucharist. That's true, and there's—I mean—there is the tradition of baptism and like being submerged and then you know coming back. I don't know if I would go that far, but you, I mean, you could make an argument for it. So that's my take: is three different curses, three different deaths. Yeah, no, that fits. That that I think fits. And then, what is your take on the end with the bishop and getting the king out of hell? I'm not sure why it's there. Like, why would the bishop want to get him out of hell? Is is my first question. What's the motivation behind that? I think it's another grab by the church at trying to say, we control the kingship because, and I like, it seems like it's a sort of final grab at sort of this old kingship because now there's, there's a new kingship that's taking over, but the church is trying to establish like, no, 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 we still control your eternal life sort of thing. Because that that would have been, I think, a major part of it in terms of the church saying, especially the early Catholic church at this point, saying, no, 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 there's indulgences, which are kind of later on, but through praying, we can get you out of hell. So it pays to be a good Christian. I mean, I like that point, but I feel like it would make the point better if they established that we could do this, but we didn't like him, so we won't. The fact that That's he decides true. to rescue him is my sticking point, because he was cursing this guy just a little he while was, ago. He which, was, which is also really weird. It's like, why would you curse the guy and then get him out of hell? And so that's why I think the, the, the last portion of this tale has a lot of revisionist history by the clerics here. Because yeah. especially if you've got this whole body of text, it's like, no, we're cursing him, and this isn't cool, and we're supporting his rivals. It's like... Why do you care? This guy literally brought in this otherworldly goddess figure, cheated on his wife, left his kids, and he died because of it. You know, let him let him be feasted upon by the dogs. Maybe in the original, the bishop damned him to hell, and they decided that wasn't a good That look. could be a possibility. That would be very interesting. They could have, oh, damning would have been interesting because it's sort of implicit that he's damned anyway because you wouldn't need to pray to get his soul out of hell if he wasn't damned in the first place. That is true. And honestly, based on his actions in the story, I think he's violated enough church strictures that he's not going to hell. Exactly. Yeah, so another really interesting bit about this story is that in the text where it's copied over, there's a lot of abbreviation. So when she sets spears outside the house, oh, it does say that she set the house on fire. So she did do that. She gets into bed, wakes him up and says there's a host outside. And the word for host in Old Irish is slog. And the word for spear in Old Irish is sleg. So... Mm -hmm. The cleric wrote S 
L and then an abbreviation for like, you fill in the blank here. So we don't necessarily, like it's not explicit whether it's Spears or Host, but he doesn't encounter the Host outside, he encounters the Spears, which is the only way the story works, especially for the threefold death. He has to run into the Spears. Is it clear that he thinks there's a host? I think so, because he's in that madness. And so the house is on fire. He wants to run outside. He runs into the, the spears. So it could be the case of he doesn't necessarily see the host or anything like that. He just, you know, she wakes him up. She's like, your enemies are here. And he's like, oh, crap. And bolts, you know, thereby impaling himself. And then the threefold death is interesting because he fails the three challenges of being king wisdom and the land and so that's one is like the like ownership of the land the second one is brawn and being a warrior because he's not being an effective warrior at all here and the first one is brain which is like the druids and religion so he fails all three of these challenges to be king and so you have three examples of violent death which is reserved for offenders against the church that's what it is. Is that's the that's the threefold death of Fender yeah. the church? It's explicit that his death is not in line with the church, which again, like why would you pray to get his soul out of hell? I feel like there's no way that's originally for the church because that does not no, sound But there is a case of it in eleven sixty six. So it could have been an earlier tradition, and then over time, the like the law comes back in. It's like the Icelandic law, where it's like, yeah, we're all Christian, just you know, practice your paganism quietly at home. That's I think what's going on there. So I'm trying to think like, why would the church decide that that you have to burn and drown people at the same time? That sounds very yeah, exactly. So that's that's where I think that's coming from. But the the tradition is sort of like pigeonholed in there. It's like just shove it in, don't ask questions. Like, I'm not saying the church wouldn't burn people. They definitely do that. It's just oh, yeah. a, a, it's just a weird ritual thing that doesn't seem to fit with well, it. Well, it doesn't really fit the, the sort of medieval church history otherwise. And especially because this tale is older than that. So if we do talk about as being sort of the sovereignty figure, mm-hmm. you have this idea that she needs to fulfill that role. So she feeds him but it's only like poison wine it's not anything sustainable which in other irish sagas when you do interact with otherworldly food it is completely sustainable and it just keeps going so this is an inverse of that which is also very very interesting and she controls him he's not necessarily controlling her he doesn't have power over his kingdom at all but then again the clerics are also trying to control him at the same time so like like he's he's a non-figure in this story basically i feel like no one seems to be actually controlling this kingdom there's no mention of like Mm -mm. legislation let's see i'm trying to think of other other things that i have here there is a connection between the goddess of sovereignty and the goddess of death they do go hand in hand which is particularly why I made the connection with the Morgan earlier because she has the the same idea. She's sort of connected with the land, but she's also a goddess of death because there's the Banshee, which means otherworldly woman. And later you get this idea of the Banshee, which is the wailing woman wailing before, before someone dies. So there's that tradition. Uh, so the Banshee 
is an otherworldly woman. So that's the older connection there that would fit with this. But then there's also the idea of Fierflatha, which is, and I, I love what Fierflatha represents, and we can get into this next time. But Fierflatha is king wisdom. So it's sort of that, that supernatural wisdom that kings are supposed to have. So you know a king is a good king if he has Fierflatha, which obviously Mikhersach does not have, because he hasn't been able to figure any of this out. He doesn't but, seem to even have normal No, he's... <laughs> totally not. But flath is a feminine word meaning sovereignty. So it later represents the king. But traditionally, it indicates that sovereignty is sort of personified and, and um, grammatically a feminine term. And sovereignty is often portrayed as a woman or a goddess. Like we've seen this before. It's the lady with the mead cup. We also see this in Beowulf. Uh, when the queen comes out with a cup and she's serving everyone. Uh, so she has that role to, to help serve the king. Uh, it's also a metaphor for the land. So it's this idea of a sacred marriage between her and the king, but it's one that she chooses. The woman always gets to choose the king. So again, we can see this Irish idea of a sort of an, it, it's an otherworldly feminine agency, but it's still an agency that's very, very interesting. And the word for that is, is feish, which is a festival, but the original meaning is to sleep with. So that's like when the king consummates the marriage. Festive. Yes, very festively. So it's also the uh, inauguration ceremony of the king. So all of that is going into this idea of the sovereignty goddess, and all of that is coming into this idea of who... Is. So she's a representative of the land, which we see in her name, Rough Wind, Winter Night. So that's all brought in there. Also, a motif of death and killing we're seeing with connecting with the land and also with sovereignty. So all of this is coming together. So this is an example of if you're a bad king, this is what you can expect. I see. <laughs> so that's sort of the background to this story. And I think it's useful to have that after the actual story itself because the story like the tale on its face is very abrupt and very strange and doesn't make a lot of sense and then once you get into the politics of it and sort of the irish meaning of things and that's one of the things i love about the irish language is there's so much trapped in every single word and every single meaning and um like place names in particular you have this idea of dishonicus which is like place wisdom that's found in names of certain things so place names have a lot of wisdom that's found there but you also see that with you know fear flatha and name herself so names have a lot of power in ancient well ancient lore from everywhere but particularly ireland so we we get to see that in this story yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay, shall we jump into some of the other segments? All right. What say you? Honestly, I think uh, the way she introduces herself qualifies as excellent dialogue. Mm-hmm. And she gives this long list of things and she's like, and that's my name and you can't say it. You can't say it whatsoever. I think that's fantastic dialogue. I'm trying to think if there's anything that kind of that challenges that. I think the only thing that comes close is when she proclaims her names again. When she's like, you've said my name. You said this is a bad storm. That's who I am. And it's going to lead to your death. I think that's when we see the most, most power out of her. 
And there, there's something spooky about listing all those names and you're like, oh boy, oh dear. Like this, you know, it's like a hurricane coming down. That's also a really unsettling moment when she's saying, you've said my name and that will lead to your death. It's really unclear what's going on. And it's it's definitely not compatible with the part at the end where she claims she's just some girl getting revenge for her father. Like that does not fit with that ending. Exactly. That's that's why it's so interesting to me. Like, is this some form of weird possession that's going on where like all of a sudden like the Morrigan or, or some like Irish sovereignty goddess comes in and, and swoops down on this girl and, and the spirit of the land takes her or something. But I mean, she just appears. So I, I still think it's revisionist. The text does say she appears on this mound, which is distinctively fey. That's very, very otherworldly. But no, that's, I think that's fantastic dialogue for her. The possession thing is definitely the only way to make the end fit with everything else she does. I, I think you're right in that the end is just added on. Someone rewrote it because it was just <laughs> too, too pagan. It's too pagan. Oh, man. We do love the Irish scribes for copying down what they did. But at the same time, there was a lot of censorship in there. Okay. Best death. I feel like we have one clear candidate, and it's the threefold <laughs> death. Man, the threefold death. Yep. Okay. Yeah. What is it? Morkertach. Morkertach. The king. The king's death. I mean, that's that's one heck of a way to go, especially symbolically. It is the title of the story. That's true. Can't get any better than that. I will say that his wife's death is particularly dramatic. It's almost an anime death. You know, where you get, like, her heart bursting, and it's like, and all the, just the gore goes splattering. It just seems like a very, very anime-style death. It's like, oh, just spraying everywhere. Ooh. <laughs> but I, I do, I do think McCartick gets this one. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Okay. Grant me the moment. Shall we see what we can use for a D&D game here? I think it would be really interesting to have some sort of fey encounter where they have a long name that's just common words and you have to avoid them. But I also feel that would be really mean to do to your players. It depends. I feel like you might be able to get away with that for a particular player and they're like a warlock mm-hmm. and their patron. Like you can't say the patron's name. And so the entire time your player has to be very careful about what words they choose. And if if they slip up, you as the DM can use like the wild magic table and invoke that. And their name is something like and or. Um. Yeah, something very, very simple, or an everyday word, or a season, something like that. Or, like, a weather condition. Or they could do what did and say, I have a lot of names, you can't say any of them. Mm-hmm. You can't say any of it, yeah. If you're a particularly cruel DM. I think it would be very interesting to use as a, as a game mechanic if you had a king who did have a conflict like this where the players had to go through and figure out how to solve this problem for the king, how to get rid of this woman or this otherworldly being who's possessing the king. That would be really interesting. I feel like it would take 
a good chunk of uh, time, but that's that's good. You could build a decent campaign around that. Because that, that would be interesting, especially if you wanted to play with the Pantheon and the clerics as well. Right, because you've got at least two rival churches there with the clerics mm-hmm. and the druids. And mm-hmm. then... Whatever this is. the Fae? Yeah, <laughs> you could play with the Fae. You could make it, you know, one of the one of the hells, something like that. That would, yeah. I think that would be an interesting campaign or, or part of a campaign. Something bizarre you could throw at them as a higher level quest. The bit at the end where the bishop decides that he has to get the king out of hell and for whatever reason maybe that's a little more difficult than he anticipated and maybe his god is not agreeing with him and so he <laughs> contracts the party to go i need you to get this specific soul so i can say it worked and i really can do that yeah yes it's like a like a the church campaign it's like well you know we need to get this done uh, we need to increase our power our political power in the kingdom so we need you guys to get the soul for us it's gonna look really bad for us if that soul doesn't go to heaven okay shall we how many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown. Uh, any echoes in modern culture that we see here? <laughs> um, I'm thinking think the, about it. The, the fairy mounds, I think, still stick. Yeah. We do see the fairy mounds. We do have this idea of, of enchanted food. That is true. I mean, the Eucharist is still around, but... <laughs> Halloween is still around. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm not sure how much of that can be traced to this. Yeah, this story in particular. This one's a pretty obscure little text. Is it? It's. I mean, in in terms of Irish stuff, it's not part. It's not really part of like the Tooth of Dedanon or anything like that. So it doesn't. I don't think it comprises too much of the corpus. Okay. I just assumed it was something I hadn't heard of, but it was well known in Irish studies. I don't necessarily know. Irish studies isn't my area. I, I was exposed to this while I was doing some Irish studies, but this seemed more like one of my professor's favorite stories that he wanted to bring in. I so I don't know. I really enjoy this story. From what I know of the Irish corpus, and I could be wrong, and if anyone's out there who wants to correct me, please do, but it's, it's not one of the bigger mythological stories. It's a smaller sort of kingship annal. Okay. Shall we do our comitatus? Can we make a D&D party from any, anyone here? I feel like it's tricky. There's, there's, there's limited characters in this text. You mean you could definitely play with having the king as an NPC, but there's there's no there's no characters in particular that I would really want to have as part of the party, except for maybe the bishop. I was thinking the druid. Yeah, yeah. You get a druid. You get the bishop. You know, he plays as like a paladin or something. But yeah, the the king is he he would have to be an NPC. That doesn't really work. <laughs> He's useless. And she has her own agenda. I don't think she'd be. Mm-mm. I could see her being played by a problematic player. Yeah. But you don't want to have that player at your table. No. Because she's going to mess with the entire... She's not going to play as part of the group. I guess you could say the king's wife, but... She has a very limited role, too. She doesn't really do much. 
yeah, she's mostly there to dramatically suicide, which I feel like is mm-hmm. not great. Not helpful. No. Okay, well, we've got the cleric and we've got the druid. So that's that's the beginnings of a party. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. Um, we have poison wine. We do. We've got poison wine. I don't think and... there's anything I'd like to try. No. The, the food that she does bring into the text is pig's flesh in particular. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's bewitched pork. I wonder if that has anything to do with the pig being an unclean animal. I would guess that maybe so, but that's, isn't that, that's more of a Jewish tradition. Yeah. But it, I don't know how often it comes up in the New Testament, but a lot of Old Testament stuff made it into Christianity regardless. That's true. There, there might be a taboo around that, and therefore it's brought into sort of, you know, forbidden foods. But I don't know. I would have to, I would have to go back into the other Irish stories because I, I think I remember that one of the other feasts that had otherworldly food had like massive pigs to feast upon, so maybe maybe it's just a feast food? I would not be surprised to find that that's just a standard part of a feast, because, I mean, boar hunting is a big thing, right? Right. I'll bet you it's that one, because it is the king's table. So it's just, you know, pig's flesh. Yeah, the fact that it's not kosher is probably not relevant. <laughs> I doubt it. Okay, well, there's the kitchen table. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. What was the word for, like, the wisdom of the land? Because I feel like that would be useful. There's the, the king's wisdom, which is Fearflatha. I think that's the one I was thinking of. There's the place name wisdom, which is Dinshanicus, if I, I think I'm saying that one correctly, which is also a fantastic one. I don't necessarily... I think Fearflatha you can use more in a campaign to sort of talk about the king's wisdom. Yeah, and you could even make it an actual mechanic Mm-hmm. And maybe build something around a king who's lost his fearflatha. Is that how yeah, you fe- fearflatha. Yeah, fearflatha, and is trying to hide it, but it's going to gradually become clear that he's whatever like connection to his kingdom he had has been cut off for some reason, and they have to they have to get it back. Yeah, that would work. I think because we we briefly touched on. Geish as well. And so even though that's already a spell, I, I think you can you can bring in that idea or you can, you as a DM, for instance, can keep that in the back of your head and talk about curses like that. All right. Best moment. I think my favorite moment in this text is when the bishop comes to see the king fighting trees. <laughs> Because that really yeah. puts everything into perspective. Up mm-hmm. until then, it was like, oh, okay, the king's having this great fairy party. And then suddenly the whole narrative shifts when you realize that he's not doing anything. He's just being bewitched to, to see things I guess, hallucinate. Like yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that's the best moment. Because the story really does have you going this whole time. It's like, oh, wow, there's goat head people and there's headless people and there's blue people. It's like, no, no, it's just trees and rocks. Yeah, up until that moment, I was kind of on board with I'm like, okay, yeah, she seems great. Yeah, yeah, Like, exactly. it's weird that the king wants to just go fight random people, but I guess she's just indulging him. Yeah, I say that that speaks to how well the story is told in that you're brought in 
with the king. You're like, okay, you know, seems kind of weird, but I'm, I, I can deal with this, you know, supernatural stuff. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, nope, nope, nope. I was, I was fighting the trees too. All right. Speaking of the blue people, I've got to ask, does it mean blue, blue? Or is it like the Blaumen in Icelandic where it's just African people? I don't know. It doesn't say. I would have to go back into the old Irish. I would have to find the Irish form. And I don't even know if that would, you know, necessarily say. Because if it's just the word for blue, then then you don't know. Yeah, that's true. What I thought of was sort of the, the old picked idea of, you know, the painting yourself blue. Whoa, yeah. I think that would probably make more sense. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing I thought of was, um, I think it's Grimur Saga, where Glaumur is described as being blue, which is to say black, like he's like he's dead, like a corpse, like a zombie. Greta Saga. Yeah, yeah, Greta Saga. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So, I mean, to me, it would almost make more sense that they're like blue-gray, like they're dead, because if he's fighting rocks, the color would make sense. And we have sort of a, a linguistic and a, his, a history of people being described as blue-gray or, or being described as blue when they're they're meant to be like dead. Yeah. All right. So that's another that's another interpretation. Yet another possible interpretation that I feel like has to be thrown out. It could be members of the Blue Man group. <laughs> we do know that they are immortal, so it could very well be. Okay. So, shall we move on to the court? The court. Now, since you introduced it, I pick first mm-hmm. this time, but I'm having a lot of difficulty with this one. It's hard. Yeah. Because we can't pick an immortal character. But is immortal? That was my question. It's like, how, how do we define her? My impulse is to say that the only way to square that bit at the end where she says, I'm taking revenge for my father, with the rest of it is to say she was possessed earlier. That's true. Because you, you could say that, but then if you took her into your court, you wouldn't have any of those powers because she, would she wouldn't be... She would just be the girl. Right. So like, is, is she immortal and therefore ineligible? Or is she mortal and therefore we didn't really meet the character at all? We met whatever was controlling her. Exactly. I feel like either way, you don't really want her because she's either ineligible or, you know, she didn't do that much. Or it's revisionist history. I like her, but I'm going to avoid that can of worms. That's and fair. I'm going to take the druid, dub... Dub Doreen. Dub Doreen. Dub Doreen. Yes. He's fantastic. You get the foretellings here. You get all of that. And if he's a real druid, he's incredibly well educated. So that'll be nice to have. Yeah. No kidding. Well, he is a compelling character. But since you have taken him, I think I will go with the bishop because either. He has the power to, well, first off, he has a lot of sway over Ireland, which is important, but he either has the power to curse you or to get you out of hell or to keep you in hell or whatever, you know, he's decided here. Yeah, he has some sort of wild supernatural powers that's never clear. And his name, because he is named, but these Irish names are very interesting. And his name is Kernech. I feel like you need to write these down at some point, because I don't know how to spell either Dubdoreen or Kerneck. So Dubdoreen is actually pretty simple. It's three words. It's D-U-B space D-A and then another space and then Reen, R-I-N-N. So Dubdoreen, Dubdoreen. 
that's yes. much simpler than I was expecting. I was expecting a lot of yeah. pictures. Yeah. Yeah. B-H in there for a B sound. Yeah. And then Kernech is C-A-I-R-N-E-C-H. So that one's fairly simple. Yeah. Both of those are easier than I was expecting. And the queen. Oh, she gets a name. She does have a name, and it's Dualsech or Dual Dualsech. It's D U A I B S E C H. That's more like what I was expecting. Yeah, and then Muhertach is M U I R C E R T A C H. Yeah. Okay. So he gets a very Irish name as well. I'm glad that the complexity of Irish names was not oversold. Yes. No, it is. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So Mechertach Mecherka and Mecherka is two words as well. And that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. That's just the patronymic, right? Yeah. Son of Erica. And at this point... I say point, this as someone named McGregor, as if I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And at this point in the story, they are still listing people as son of and daughter of, which is interesting, which does tell you that it is a fairly old story because they're not using patronymics. They're actually, or they're not using surnames, they're using patronymics. I'm just so used to, to thinking of things that way because I guess I, I've been spending a lot of time in the sagas recently and everyone's yeah. a son of. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, of course. But yeah, you're right. They do. They did adopt surnames in Ireland a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because the same professor who did this class with me at Trinity did a fantastic class um, that I partially audited before things got super busy about Irish surnames and how those are developed. So yeah, so your name McGregor or McErica became a surname, obviously due to being son of da 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 da. And eventually, like whoever was the actual son of Gregor just kept that on. And then their kid kept that on and kept that on and kept that on. But there's some other ones like, um, oh gosh, depending on Protestant Catholic, there's different ways to spell names that way, like how you spell Sean or whether you have Mac or Mick could have been added back in as a modern addition to make yourself more Irish even if your name didn't have that. And so there's there's lots of little things like that about, about Irish surnames that's very, very interesting. Mine's just Mick, but also my family's Scottish. Oh, really? Same root culture, but that's divided true. a long time ago. Well, shall we go on to our final rating? Yes, we shall. Final rating. All right, you go first. I really liked this one. I am a sucker for supernaturally powerful women. One of my favorite saga characters is Gunhild, Witch Queen of Norway. Yes. I'm disappointed by the end, but the yeah. rest of it I'm completely on board with. So I'm going to give it an eight. An eight. All right. All right. Very good. I think... Because I've, I, I've spent a lot of time with this saga. I've done a bit of writing on it myself. I, I do love this story. I love the political complexities of it. So it bumps the rating up for me. But there, there's so much lost because of the clerics as well. But you, I mean, you have to acknowledge that they wrote this down. And so that's fantastic that we have it. But there's also so much loss, especially at the end, like you were saying. So I think I'm going to give it... I think I'm gonna give it a seven because I was I was gonna give it a six, but I think it, it demands a little bit more just due to the political complexities of it. So I will give it a seven. 
I am recording that. So once we get our website up, we can yes. put these down somewhere. Fantastic. Which means that averaging them together, we get a 7.5. All right. It's 10% better than our last episode, than our last story, <laughs> because it got a 6.5. Oh my gosh. Yes. All right. Shall we scooch along to the Leech's Corner? Welcome to the Leech's Corner. This is still from uh, book one of the Leech book, just because that's the one I'm currently looking through. I'm also not sure to what degree it was originally thought of as book one, book two, and book three, or if that's just Cockaine doing his organizational Mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But each book of the leech book is laid out so that it starts at the top of the head and goes down to the feet over the course of the book that's the organizational structure that is such an innovative way to do it that makes a lot of sense i would never i don't think i would have ever thought about that i would have been you know i think we would think about it like hmm, well these are you know joint issues and this is like you know inflammatory issues these are illnesses but you know, going by what hurts also makes a lot of sense. It's very practical. Yeah, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense for something that's supposed to be a practical manual for a leech. If someone comes in and goes like, my knee hurts, you can just flip it open to the bit near the back where it talks about knees and see which one fits best. Yeah. A lot of these don't have official names or anything, so you couldn't organize it, but you can see which description fits. Yeah, definitely. But that's why this one from chapter six is about uh, the mouth. Okay. For tooth wark, that's W-A-R-K, which apparently means ache. But for toothache, if a worm eat the tooth, take an old holly leaf and one of the lower flower clusters of heartwort and the upward part of sage, boil two measurements in water, pour into a bowl and yawn over it. Then the worms shall fall into the bowl. If a worm eat the teeth, take holly rind over a year old and root of carline thistle. Boil in so hot water, hold in the mouth as hot as hottest thou may. (laughs) How hot is the water? It's so hot. All the hot. As hot hot. as hottest thou may. (laughs) Amazing. For toothworms, take acorn meal and henbane seed and wax of all equally much. Mingle these together, work into a wax candle and burn it. Let it reek into the mouth, put a black cloth under, then will the worms fall on it. Oh my. So I think that's kind of interesting because A, apparently there was an issue with like, and worm is a pretty general term, so you shouldn't be picturing like earthworms. It can mean any kind of like vermin. Yeah, But there was enough of an issue with things living in your teeth. They had to come up with, yeah, that face is. (laughs) (laughs) It's moments like this. I'm glad we're doing a podcast and you can't see my grotesque features. Gross. I feel like a lot of these are actually correct solutions because all of these are ways to kill something in the teeth, boil them with hot water, Mm -hmm. make a candle with henbane, which is poisonous. Right. And then breathe in the smoke. Yeah. I mean, it's not good for you either, but. (laughs) But neither is chemotherapy. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Man, see, that's what's interesting to me is if you have something living in your mouth, you don't don't want to eat, you don't want to chew. So none of these are cures that have anything to do with eating something to try and get it out. 
It's like, you know, rinse out with salt water, rinse out with boiling water, you know, smoke, steam. That's interesting. And I like that it's, there are bits of it that are clearly practical, like put henbane in a candle to get this like poisonous smoke that's hopefully poisonous enough to kill the whatevers, but not poisonous enough to hurt the person. Right. And then you put a black cloth underneath them. There's no reason for that, except... I think it makes it easier to see that something is falling dead out of them. Yeah, I think you're right. It makes your patient more aware that your cure is working. Yeah. Well, and we all know that is a major part of medicine. Yeah. And just the fact that it's even that it's in a candle is also unnecessary ritualism because you Mm -hmm. could just take some seeds and put them in a bowl and burn them and you'd get the same kind of thing. But a candle means it looks better. It lasts longer. It's probably easier to store. Well, it could also be less concentrated. So it could be a way of controlling dosage. That's true. That might be why uh, you put in acorn meal as well to kind Mm of dilute it. Mm -hmm. So what was in the first one, they're using the upper part of the plant and then there's another part where they're using the lower part. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. It says uh, the lower umbels of heartwort and the upward part of sage. Uh, An umbel is uh, just a term for a flower cluster. I don't know what the upward part of sage is. Like, you know how mint leaves or sage, it's like you pick the very tip of them. Like, you're not using big, a lot of sage. You're using just, you know, just little, little leaves. What was the other plant? Heartwort. Uh, Heart like deer, not heart like organ. Oh, heartwort. The lower part of it. I want to see if I can... Oh, well, it looks very weird. So maybe the lower part is not the not the flower, but the leaves or the, the stem? Well, it's definitely a flower cluster, but if you... I got an image on Wikipedia, and you can see that it has disparate flower clusters. Yeah. Oh, also they're... notice that this is a Mediterranean plant, because some mm-hmm. of the... Uh, remedies in the leech book were uh, imported from classical sources. Wow. Yeah. Aristotle talks about this. I don't know why the lower ones. It's, I don't know if like they're larger or if there's something just symbolic about the ones that are closer to the earth. Well, it's also used as a pot herb and a salad vegetable in Greece. I did not know that. Huh. Oh, well, according to Wikipedia, which is a valuable source, there are no known medical uses for this plant or medicinal uses. So I don't know what they're using it for. <laughs> Maybe they just like it. Good. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, you can eat it clearly. Yeah, I have no explanation. Some of the herbs in the leech book have a clear use. I don't mm-hmm. know if people have not checked to see whether there's something there or they've just checked and there's nothing. Have we encountered any plants in the leech book yet? Probably not. That just straight up don't exist. Not that I know of, or at least not that we've talked about. Yeah. One of the issues, actually, is that it's not clear what each one is. People make an effort Mm -hmm. to try and translate the old names and match them to a species. But there are some instances where everyone's kind of just thrown up their hands and gone, I don't know what this is. That's always interesting to me. I love I love knowing, like, what do we not know? Like, what are the plants that we don't know what this is? I always find those very interesting. Cocaine, our translator, does his best, and there are people later who have uh, kind of gone back and checked his work. There's actually a website I've been using that's a dictionary of old English plant names that accumulates all the research on this and tries to be a comprehensive resource. DMs, take note. That would be very useful. 
DMs also take note of toothworms if you want to make your players really uncomfortable. Ooh, there's an idea. <laughs> Next time they're in a dungeon crawl and they find an old cache of supplies, infest them with toothworms. Like, there's a reason that you don't eat the food that's been sitting there for 20 years. Do your players often eat food they find lying around? My players, God bless them, are wonderful people, and they are also idiots, and I love them so much. <laughs> no, they're fantastic. Uh, they are currently trying to figure out which side to take on a political quandary. They're all of different backgrounds and different races, since it's all a homebrew. So each one of them has a very, very different backstory from everybody else. So some of them are very aligned with what one side is doing, and some are very aligned with what the other side is doing. So there's a lot of internal party conflict at the moment between who do we side with and can I trust the guy sitting next to me? So that's the sort of thing that I enjoy doing is, you know, letting letting their own backstories come together and, and watching them, you know, try to work it out. Because if they can't figure out the conflict between their own party, I don't know how they're going to be very good negotiators for nations at war. But I'm just here for the ride. I've got to ask, how are you conducting a campaign currently? Currently, I'm not. And I want to see now that I theoretically have more time. I never have more time. But theoretically, uh, we could start doing it online again. But it's been quite some time, and I miss you all very much. But I, uh, uh. the good news is that this pandemic is giving me more time to work on backstory and details for the campaign. So <laughs> when we get back to it, it's going to be very lore-filled, is the good news. All right. Do we have anything else we need to cover for this one? I don't think so. I think that is it. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. For more geeky editions, or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. Check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I, I was disappointed that even though you were taking a sip when I said that, you managed <laughs> to not get liquid in. my coffee. <laughs> oh, man. Next time. I will. I, I feel like I will end up spraying my coffee across the table at some point. These stories are just too good.